Randy Alcorn, in his book, Simply Called Heaven, tells a story of Florence Chadwick. I don't know if you've heard her story or recall her story, but in 1952, young Florence set out on a, a quite a goal, quite, for quite a goal and quite an accomplishment. She stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, hoping to swim that channel to the mainland of California. Nothing new for her. She'd already been the first woman to swim across the English Channel uh, both ways, but this day was going to be difficult. The weather was foggy. It was a bit chilly. She could barely see the boats that were around her, supporting her, but she set out to swim. She swam and she swam and she swam. 15 hours, that's a long swim. Along the way, she would get tired and her mother would encourage her, keep going, keep going. Other times, she would just be ready to quit and her mother would say, no, you're, you keep going, you're getting closer. Finally, though, after 15 hours, she quit swimming and had to be pulled from the water into the boat. Finally, physically, emotionally exhausted, she just couldn't make it. Later, she would confess that she lost sight of her goal. Now, think about that just a moment. Lost sight of her goal. We know that keeping our goal in sight is a big factor in successfully accomplishing any goal, whether it's a race or whether it's a project, um, whether it's swimming the English Channel or just enduring and making our journey that we call life. Keeping the end in mind is critical. Focusing on the goal is important. People need to be able to look into the future and, or at least look toward the future and see where the goal is going or where the goal is. As Christians, we must never lose sight of our goal. <laughs> uh, it's important for us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12. We see how important it is throughout Scripture to keep our eyes focused on the prize, and that is Jesus. But we also know that it's important for us to keep our eyes on eternity. What's out there in the future? What's ahead? Let's keep our eyes on the other world that yet, to, that yet is to come, this place we call heaven. The apostle Paul would say that to be a child of God and not think of heaven would be like being akin to being away from home at a far and distant land and never think of home. It's just impossible. It just doesn't make sense. Well, contrary to what many Christians or many people believe, Revelation is not some kind of crystal ball revealing some kind of esoteric secrets that enable us to somehow escape the harsh realities that are coming in the future, the harsh realities of earth. Rather, what we've discovered in the past eight weeks is that Revelation is a down-to-earth manual, not on how to escape those troubles, but how to be a disciple of Jesus while facing the harsh realities of life on earth, how to deal with those harsh realities and how to persevere through those dark, dark realities as we press our way, swim our way, if you will, toward the other side. We've studied the message of Revelation now for eight weeks. It's been an incredible study. We've learned so much, and now we've come to the conclusion. And we've come to the conclusion of the book that brings us to the conclusion. This book has really given us so much confidence as it has unveiled Jesus Christ and has pulled back the curtain and allowed us to see his glory and his grandeur and his grace. What an incredible, incredible book. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity these words, 
Lewis said, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. And then Lewis adds, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. You know, I think he was really on to something there, don't you? It is important as believers that we think on the other world, that we think of what's ahead. We think of eternity. We think of the place where we're going. We think literally of home. It was Paul who said that we're just passing through. We are aliens in this world, but our citizenship, our home is in heaven. So let's take the advice of C.S. Lewis and, and let's think for a few moments this morning about this other world. Let's think about heaven. Let's think about eternity for just a few moments. And here's our question. I, I think we're going to find the answer to this in the first eight verses of Revelation 21. The question, what will eternity look like for us? What will eternity look like for us? Now, this is not the first time you've thought about that question, I'm quite sure. I don't think many of us alive, if any of us, have not thought about that at some point in time or another. What does eternity look like for us? I don't know how many times I've been asked about heaven and what heaven will look like. Questions like, will we be on clouds strumming harps? Questions like, will there be pets in heaven? Uh, questions like, what will people look like? And on and on and on. We've all asked this question. Well, I got to tell you, frankly, I don't have the answers to all those questions. And we're not really told, but we are told some things. And so this morning, I want to take you to Revelation and let's finish our study of this book, um, not verse by verse study, but this thematic study that we've been looking at. Let's finish up by looking at some things that we do know about eternity. I want to list four of them for you as we make our way through these eight verses. First of all, <clears throat> eternity will be a time when a new heaven and a new earth will meet. A new heaven and a new earth will meet. John writes this, John, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. He says, then, now I'm going to come back to that word in a minute, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Huh. Heaven and earth, a new heaven, a new earth will meet. John starts by saying, then. It's put there to remind us of what's happened already. Gives us a great moment to recap just for a second. Remember where this fits into the story. Remember where this fits into the book. It's important. What we've seen in the past weeks is we've seen the, uh, the, the breaking of the seven seals. And, and with those seven seals came the four horsemen and, and other perils on the earth. We, we've seen the, the, uh, the, the blowing of the seven trumpets. And with those seven trumpets, trouble once again. And then the 
pouring of the seven bowls of wrath as the wrath of God is poured down upon the nations, upon the earth. And then we saw the rising of the beast. Remember the beast of the sea and the beast out of the earth. And, and they both giving glory to a great dragon who was fighting with Michael in heaven. We saw that war, that cosmic conflict that has taken place. And then we saw the battle of Armageddon, the battle at Armageddon, where in fact, uh, the, that last battle takes place and the nations have gathered and, and final victory is won where Jesus comes with his white horse with his armies behind him, the, the people of God. And, and with just a word, speaks the word and wins the battle. We saw the marriage supper of the lamb. As we celebrate the marriage of, of the lamb of God, the marriage of the lamb of God to his bride, that long awaited moment when the covenant that was begun years ago is now completed. And John says, then, then. Next, what he saw was this new heaven and this new earth, this new creation. I don't know everything that new means, but I know it means different. I know it means something different. And I know that this heaven and earth are important to our heavenly father. Eugene Peterson puts it beautifully. Peterson says it this way. He said, the biblical story began quite logically with a beginning. Now it draws to an end, not quite so logically, also with a beginning. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. That's a good way to put it. A sacrifice-renewed creation. I know one thing about this new creation. I know that it is made possible through the sacrificial, atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. The one who comes to victory with the robe dipped in blood. We understand that. Now, as you might suspect, just like in other places, there's a lot of different opinions regarding this new heaven and this new earth. Some believe that the old earth and the old heaven are just completely destroyed, completely done away with, and this is a brand new creation. Others hold that, no, the old heaven and the old earth is renewed, is, is reconciled, is redeemed, if you will, is bought back or purchased back and is remade, if you will, recreated. I don't know what the truth is about those two, but here's what I know. The main things, we followed this track from Alistair Begg throughout the series, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. I believe the plain thing and thus the main thing that we're looking at here is that this new heaven and this new earth is not of our doing. It is a city that comes down out of heaven. It is a city prepared by the Lamb. It is a city not made with hands, not built by human, not earned by humans, not deserved by humans. It is an act of grace of God as he provides an incredible, incredible environment for his people. So, first thing we know, a new heaven and a new earth will meet. Second thing we know, we will be with God forever. We will be with God forever. As someone wisely said one time, enough said. <laughs> we don't really have to say anything else. This is what makes heaven, heaven. Look at verse 3. It says, and I heard of a loud voice now, often John says, I saw, but now he says, I heard. We've, the last few uh, chapters and verses, we've been seeing that he hears this loud voice, this thundering voice. Last week, we saw it as the voice of many waters or peals of thunder. So once again, this loud voice from the throne, it is the voice of authority. It is the divine voice that's saying, behold, here's the announcement. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, 
and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, before we break that down just a little bit, I want to go to that word people because I want you to notice something important. The word people, he will dwell with them and they will be his people, is really more properly translated peoples. Now, I know that's kind of a, a weird grammatical thing for us in English, but the idea here is the nations. The idea here is the laity of people, the ethnicity of people. There is a, everyone is involved here. Now, to John, a good Jew, he may have been surprised at this. He was accustomed to the people of God being Israel, being Israel alone. There was Israel, and then there was the Gentiles, and Israel were the preferred. But here we know that once it, at, at this moment, God says, All of the nations, all people groups will be my people. Now, as we think about the many, many ethnicity groups, as we think of the many, many myriads of people groups in the world, isn't it wonderful to know that some from all will be there as God's people? The key word, I think, the announcement is that the God, that they hold the dwelling place of God is with men and he will dwell with these peoples, with these people groups, dwelling place. Now, when I read that, I think uh, immediately of God dwelling with his bride forever. Think about it just a moment. Before the fall in the garden, God visited with Adam and Eve. He walked with Adam in the cool of the day, Genesis tells us. And then when we see the life of Jesus, we see God dwelling with them for a time. In the tabernacle, we saw God dwelling in the tent, but then it was removed. Through the Holy Spirit, today we have God in us, but one day, he's saying here in eternity, we see the full presence of the Godhead dwell with his people forever. I'm not even sure I know what that looks like. I'm not sure our finite minds can wrap around that completely. God dwelling with us, because it just hasn't happened. And we've not experienced that. But yet this is heaven, God's presence. This is the main thing. Danny Aiken says this is one of the most powerful promises in the Bible. In a real sense, this is what the Bible has been pointing toward throughout its 66 books. (laughs) This is it. This is the main thing. God permanently dwelling, forever pitching his tent among his redeemed people. When I think about the dwelling place of God, I think about the tabernacle. My mind immediately goes there because if you recall in that ancient tent, that tabernacle from long ago, God had given Moses instruction to build it. And in the instructions, he gave Moses instructions for a cube, a room that was to be a cube. The, 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 the length, the breadth, the height, the depth, all were the same. It was a perfect cube. It was called the Holy of Holies. It, it was hidden by a veil, a thick veil. And in that Holy of Holies, you're familiar, the Ark of the Covenant rested. And there, between the, on the lid, between the cherubim, the presence of God dwelled there for that moment. What a thought. Now, here's what's interesting to me. The idea of God's dwelling place is carried over now. And later in the chapter, you can read it on your own. Later in the chapter, we find John beholding this new city, the city of the, this new Jerusalem. And guess what? The, the city is actually measured. Its length, its breadth, its width, its height, it's all measured. And, and, and guess what? Don't, don't get lost in, in how many cubes it is, how many cubic feet it might be, how many miles it is. 
get lost in this. It forms a perfect cube. <laughs> a perfect cube. Why? Could it be that God is saying to us here in the final book of the Revelation that now we all are in the Holy of Holies. We're not just outside of the Holy of Holies thinking about what God must be like behind the curtain. We no longer are blocked out by the curtain, but the curtain is brought down. Now we are entering in, and now the entirety of heaven is the entirety of the presence of God. We dwell in the Holy of Holies. I'm not sure we can really get a grasp of that. I'm not sure we can understand that, but I believe it. Listen to what he says later on now. He comes down to verse 22 and 23 in this chapter, and he says this. He says, I saw no temple, talking about the new Jerusalem, the holy city, this new heaven, this new earth. He says, I saw no temple in the city. Why? Because its temple is the Lord, the Almighty, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun nor moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Wow, what a sight. I'm not sure we need to say any more. What a glorious thing. The main thing is clear. This is what makes heaven, well, heaven. It is the presence of God and being in his presence. So first, a new heaven and a new earth will meet. Second, we will be with God forever. And then third, the effects of sin will be gone. The effects of sin will be gone. Another thing we've not experienced in our lifetime. Another thing we've never experienced. We don't understand what that means. We experience the effects of sin every day. And these many toils and troubles and trials, these things that fog up our lives so that we lose sight of the end, those things that trouble us and make the swim, the journey difficult, those things are all the result of sin in this world. And yet now we see the effects of sin will be gone in this new heaven. In this new earth, this new eternity. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, He, that is God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's got to be one of the most comforting passages in all of Scripture. Now, we could debate the meaning of that. We could debate where the tears come from. We can debate when the tears come. We could debate how all this happens. But my friend, listen, the main thing is the plain thing, and that is God is bringing comfort to his people. Wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then look, all of these effects of sin that are no more. He says, death shall be no more. Can I get an amen? <laughs> death shall be no more. We're experiencing a time in our particular area, in our particular region, and really globally, where death seems so prevalent, where death seems so present, where death seems to be pressing in all around us, where, where death seems so ominous. And yet he says, death be no more. Neither will there be mourning. I'm glad to know that. Mourning is painful, isn't it? Mourning is difficult. Nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Wow, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And by the way, those are the same words he opened Revelation with. You remember the first vision that we saw of Jesus in Revelation 1 and verse 8? He opened up by saying, look, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I think he's saying to us very clearly, I am all in all and I am everything. I am all. I'm A to Z. 
everything you need, everything you desire. And then to cap it off and to really emphasize it, he says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. What a thought. The one thing we see on this throne, the one that is seated on this throne makes this big announcement and lets us know I am the living waters and I will provide water. Every one of them knew the importance of water. They knew how important water was. Uh, listen, we in, a, we in Florida, we have a hard time understanding this because we have water everywhere. But in that culture and in that place, they understood exactly the value of water, how important it was in water. Why are cities built on the same places? Because of water supply. Water is important. Water is life. And I'm convinced that he's saying here, I am the giver of life. We know that Jesus offers life, that he offers life abundant. And now we see that he offers life abundant and free. What a thought. Remember when he said to his followers, I am the life. I am the life. The thief doesn't come but to rob and to kill and to destroy, but I have come to give life and to give it more abundantly. He is our life. He is everything. There is no need for anything present in this new heaven, this new earth, present in this eternity. There is no need for anything because Jesus has it all. He is all. He is the sun that brightens the day. He is the moon that guides at night. He is the water that flows freely to give life. <sighs> John's hard. He's stressing here to be able to explain this picture, to help us to see this picture. What will eternity be like? Man, what a thought. This new heaven and this new earth meet, and this real place comes into existence. What is eternity going to be like? It's, it's a time when we will be in God's presence. And, and it's a time when the penalty, when the presence of sin is no longer there. And fourth, what will eternity be like? We will never taste death again. Never taste death again. Verse 7 says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. The one who conquers we conquer through Jesus Christ. Paul told us that. We don't conquer by trying to go out there and be the warrior ourselves. If you try to warrior, be the warrior on your own, you're not going to make it. Our conquering is through Jesus Christ. We conquer all things through Christ. We are made conquerors in him. For the follower of Christ, for those of you, for those of us who know Christ as our Savior and walk in that family and walk in that, that army, we, the conquerors of Christ, he says, have this heritage. This is yours. This is what you have to look forward to. I'll be your God, and you'll be my son. Then he gives a warning. He says, but as for the cowardly, and he's talking here about those who are not in Christ, for those who have rejected Jesus, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Maybe one of the promises of eternity's closest to our hearts is the present time is the promise that the reign of death will be done. We'll never taste death again. Death is that one thing that the enemy seems to hold in our face as an intimidating factor. Seems to hold over us to keep us walking in fear. And yet here we see it abolished. Now here's a sobering thought. 
I think what this is teaching us simply is for those who know Christ as Lord, for eternity they will know nothing but life. But for those who don't know Christ as Lord, for eternity they will know nothing but death. Today, my friend, is the day for you to choose. Today is the day for you to make ready. Today is the day for you to decide to become a follower of Christ. Today is the day for you to yield your heart to him so that you're a conqueror through Christ and and enjoying this place and your heritage becomes the place that John is talking about. Today is the day of salvation for you if you do not know Christ. If you do know Christ today, today is a day of rejoicing. Today is an exciting day, an incredible way to end this study, to pull back the curtain onto this new heaven and this new earth, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, this new thought, this new idea, this new expression of what eternity is really like. So many wonderful things can be said about eternity. One hardly knows where to start, but Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite authors and preachers, Put it so well. He's given us a helpful and interesting highlight reel of what we've just seen, of 12 things that will not exist, <laughs> not be present in eternity. Can I just read them to you for a moment? <laughs> be blessed. Listen, he says, no more sea because chaos and calamity will be eradicated. No more tears because hurtful memories will be replaced. No more death because mortality will be swallowed up by life. No more mourning because sorrow will be completely comforted. No more crying because the sounds of weeping will be soothed. No more pain because all human suffering will be cured. No more thirst because God will graciously quench all thirsts. No more wickedness because all evil will be banished. No more temple because the Father and the Son are personally present. No more night because God's glory will give eternal light. No more closed gates because God's doors will always be open. And no more curse because Christ's blood has forever lifted the curse. Oh, what a joy. John struggled as he tried to explain what he saw. He could only use symbols. He could only talk about streets of gold and gates of pearl and walls of jasper. It's beyond description. I think I understand that. We've seen some pretty glorious sights ourselves, right? St. Augustine, Augustine, however you prefer to say it, St. Augustine was a renowned theologian, prolific writer, skilled preacher. And in his book, The City of God, Augustine tells of sitting at the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. As he looked out over the Mediterranean Sea at a glorious sunset, the sunset was breathtaking. Think about those moments you've had like that, whether it was at the beach, the ocean, whether, whether it was on a mountaintop, uh, whether it was looking over the Grand Canyon, whether it was looking at a majestic forest in, um, in one of the great parks in our world, whether it was uh, uh, whatever that scene might be, maybe it was an incredible full moon, whatever moves you to that place that you are with Augustine and you see this beauty and you see this grandeur and you see this glory and it immediately makes you think of God. Here's what Augustine said as he looked out over that site, as he peered over that wonderful, uh, incredible scene, Augustine said, wrote these words, If these are the beauties afforded to sinful men, what must God have in store for those who love him? Wow. If these are the beauties afforded to sinful men, what must God have in store for those who love him? So the takeaway, my friend, for this series, really, this message, this series is simply this. This, what we've talked about today, heaven, eternity, 
What we've talked about today, this is what hope for tomorrow and strength for today looks like. And this is why Revelation is such an incredible study. This is why the enemy would love to rob you of this incredible book. He would love to frustrate you or scare you or confuse you, cause you to shut the book. I'm not reading that book. No one can understand Revelation. Oh, my dear friend, yes, you can. And as you look at Revelation, you find hope for today, for tomorrow, hope for tomorrow and strength for today. And it helps you. It helps you keep your eyes on heaven. For keeping your eyes on heaven is not going to keep you from trouble in this world, but it will help you push through it. By the way, I didn't finish Florence's story. Remember when she was pulled up out of the water? Remember she could just go no further? She had swam for 15 hours. Remember that we said that she was pulled into the boat and, 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 and she looked and was exhausted physically and emotionally? Well, then she found out some really bad news. As she came into the boat, she discovered that shore was less than half a mile away. She had swam for 15 hours, struggling against the current, struggling against the conditions, struggling in the fog and the chill. 15 hours only to learn that the shore was less than half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, here's what she said. She said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. <laughs> what telling words. All I could see was the fog. Maybe right now all you can see is the fog. Maybe life is pretty chilly for you. Maybe it's pretty dark. Maybe it's pretty dim. Life is full of troubles. Life is not easy. We have health problems. We have unemployment problems. We have financial uncertainty. We have strained relationships. We have loss of loved ones. We have pressures. We have stress. We have strain. Let's face it. Life's not easy, and the fog can easily overwhelm us. Devastation, devastation, discouragement, death, suffering can all overwhelm us. I suspect that right now many of you, many of us, are feeling overwhelmed. Fog rolls in regularly. I'm encouraging you today to look through the fog, to look toward the shore. All I could see was the fog, she said. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I know if you can keep your eyes on the shore... If you can keep your eyes on the shore, you will persevere in this life. Not only was this book written so that we could know about what the future is, this book was written not only to give us hope for the future, this book has given us a battle plan for today. This book has given us a strategy for today. But even as we press on today, we look to the shore we look to the heavenly shore, and no matter how foggy it gets, we know we're a little bit closer than we were before this message started. We're already closer than when I started this morning. Let me close with this verse from Philippians where Paul wrote to the Philippian church with similar words. He said, one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and looking forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. He could say, I'm pressing toward the shore. I'm swimming hard toward the shore. To why? To win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He said, I'm pressing toward heaven. I'm pressing toward higher ground. And as I press, I'm keeping my eyes on the prize. I'm keeping my eyes on the shore, the goal. 
and that is to finish. God bless you, my friends. Thank you for joining us in this study. And I trust that God will speak to your heart. There's somebody waiting to hear from you right now. Right now, someone is waiting, live, waiting to hear from you. You can call us. You can talk to us. You can, you, we can pray with you. We'd love to talk further with you. Whatever the need, we love hearing from you. God bless you. May I pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this time together. Thank you for this incredible book and this incredible study. And Lord, I pray that you would use it to strengthen us, use it to convict us, use it to encourage us, use it, oh God, to help us to keep our eyes on the shore where our Lord Jesus awaits as captain of our souls, savior of our souls, our Lord and our King. Amen and amen.